Uh, If you have a Bible, we'll pick up his story in Acts chapter 22, verse number 22. We'll be reading from there in just a few minutes. But if you've been with us, you know that we're in the middle of studying the Apostle Paul's return to Jerusalem. Paul has spent 10 years on the mission field planting churches in Turkey, in Greece, all around the Roman Empire. Uh, But uh, here at this point in his ministry, at this point in his life, uh, Paul has returned to Jerusalem around 58, 59 AD. Uh, he um, has returned to Jerusalem because uh, his own confession is he wants to share the gospel with his Jewish brothers and sisters. Um, he believes that all that God has done through him and in him is uh, more than enough that should convince them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So we're in the middle of studying Paul's return to Jerusalem, which we've already read enough to know it was very chaotic and very quickly became dramatic um, as uh, the, the people began to riot against him and, 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 and come against him trying to kill him. And we'll see that story continue tonight. But if you've been reading ahead You've probably already noticed that the the chapters that we're studying, beginning with chapter 21 um, through the end of this book, but chapters 21, 22, 23, uh, these these chapters kind of have a different pace than what we've studied before in Acts. Um, these chapters, of course, are telling a story that is bigger than just one chapter. It kind of you know flows to the next one, and and and, and the narrative is a lot more detailed. Um, and, and if you've recognized that, you probably would notice that it's very different than what we've studied before this. Um, Acts chapter tw- 1 through chapter 20 um, has a different feeling to it, has a different pace to it. And I wanted to kind of talk about the difference up front tonight because I think that helps us understand um, more importantly what God is doing in these chapters, but also reflect on what he did before. Um, for instance, the first 20 chapters of Acts cover and span 27 years of church development and church progression. So, I think we read Acts and we think, wow, this is one big event after one big event. And, you know, Peter's doing this and James is doing this and John's doing this. And, you know, Philip and and Stephen and Paul are doing this. We think that it's just one thing after another. But in fact, and not to underplay it at all, but in fact, the first 20 chapters of Acts spans nearly 30 years of church history and church development. And I think it's easy when we read the Bible, it's easy to get discouraged about our own world and our own church and our own lives uh, when we consider how much was going on in biblical stories and how often we don't see a lot going on in our stories. And, And the devil uses this to really discourage the church. And I think it's worth speaking to tonight because I think somebody I think would, would relate to this. Maybe all of us can relate to this, that we read the Bible sometimes and we think, wow, that was just the Bible. But why isn't it the same now? And why isn't there such momentum and energy and movement like there was then? Uh, but when we think about the fact that Acts 1 through 20 spans 27 years, that's not even a chapter for every year. Uh, And again, I'm not trying to downplay what God did. He did a lot. Uh, And and I'm not trying to downplay what God was doing, um, you know, in the lives of the the apostles. But I'm also trying to raise up what God was doing in the unrecorded days. Because we've got 20 chapters across 27 years. That means there's a lot that happened in those 27 years that isn't in the Bible and that isn't recorded. Whether it wasn't worth recording or not, we don't know. But the truth is God was at work in those unrecorded days as much as he was in the days that are on record, in the days that we have accounts from. So I want to encourage you tonight that we often compare ourselves to what was going on back then. And we think, well, you know what, if there isn't a Pentecost-like experience, if there isn't 
You know, a story like what Peter experienced when he got out of jail that time or what Paul experienced when he got out of the prison at Philippi. I think sometimes we kind of get ourselves, you know, discouraged comparing ourselves to what things were like and what things are like now. And most of the days in the book of Acts were comprised of people who faithfully served God and attended the church and worked in community, witnessed their lives and worked for the Lord and, and attended church, supported this ministry. And, and we don't read about those days. We, re, we read about the high spots. We read about the, the hilltops and you know, sometimes we read about the valleys that led to great miracles. But we don't read about all the, you know, the days that maybe don't have a lot of pomp and circumstance to them. But I wanted to bring those to the surface uh, because if you think what's on display in Acts is really, if you think about it, what's on display is really less than 1% of the whole story, less than 1% of the time period, those 37 years, which, which I think sends a pretty big message to us tonight, that preparation is 99% of ministry. Activation is just 1%. And what I mean by that is we're reading, in the book of Acts, we've read 1% of what actually went on in that 30-year period. We don't read the other 99%. We can infer what went on, and the Bible says they went day-to-day, you know, house-to-house, you know, fellowshipping with each other, studying the Word of God, breaking bread. So we can infer that they spent a lot of time preparing themselves for ministry, preparing themselves to do the work of the ministry, but we only get to read about the activation of it in the book of Acts, and that's, again, less than 1%, maybe 1% of the story. The other part of the story, the most part of the story, is the preparation that they put in. So don't underestimate and don't undervalue the importance of those forgettable days, those forgettable Sundays when God brings you into the church or those forgettable Wednesdays when God brings you into the church and he feeds you with a common grace and he strengthens you with songs and with word and with the community. You know, I use the meal analogy a lot when I talk about the church, not to under, not to kind of dance around the fact that Sometimes every service isn't the greatest. Of course, they aren't. I'm not always doing the best job. I'm not always, you know, on the level that I would like to be. But again, I use the meal analogy because every meal that you take part, you know, partake in, every meal isn't a mind-blowing, supernatural experience. I mean, if you have a meal, if every time you, you sit down at the table and you get up and think, man, that was the greatest meal I've ever had, then you wouldn't have a great meal. And we'd never have a great meal because they all would be great, right? Thanksgiving wouldn't be a big deal, right? If every day, every lunch or dinner was Thanksgiving. So the point is, every meal isn't mind-blowing. Every meal isn't this experience that you think, wow, that was greatest. But every meal keeps you alive. And that's what positions you to make the most of those days when great opportunities come your way. So many Christians, you know, we're given over to emotional unsettledness more in today's world than ever. We're given over to discontentment because the enemy uses this to discourage us. And, and, and we miss out on the good work God wants to do in us so that he might do a greater work through us in the future. So don't downplay the 99% of the time when God is preparing you uh, and only look forward to the 1% when things are getting activated and things are getting put on display because what God is doing now behind the scenes is what God is preparing you for when he takes you to a place of great opportunity. And a couple of verses that I think we should consider that backs this up and supports this truth. Um, In Matthew 17, Jesus said this to the disciples, because of your little faith, 
you could not do this miracle that was put in front of you when the little boy with the demon came before them and they couldn't help them. They couldn't help him and the father was discouraged. Jesus is because you have little faith. Now, think about little faith as in immature faith, underdeveloped faith. Think about little faith the same way you think about a little person. They're still growing. And what's important for growth? Well, we can talk about that. But Jesus says, if you had the faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, move here to there, and it will move, and nothing would be impossible for you. But what Jesus wants us to know about faith is faith needs to be nurtured like a seed that's planted. It's watered. It's, it's cultivated so that it can grow so you know what's really important about faith and how to grow your faith? Jesus says this kind, this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So what Jesus says is that faith grows through that preparation. See, we read in Acts about the activation of the faith of Peter, of Philip, of Stephen, of Paul and others we don't really read about the preparation, but let me make it clear that if not for their preparation, there would be no activation. It was the prayer and fasting and devotion of their hearts through that 99% of the time that prepared them and led them to this place that we get to read about. And as Christians and church members, don't ever downplay and don't ever deprioritize preparation and devotion because every little bit works to make us closer to God and better equip us to serve him. And of course, that is why we get to read about the Apostle Paul over the last eight chapters of Acts, doing things and representing the Lord in a way that is, is almost um, you know, unheard of because Paul was a man prepared for moments like this. And, and in Acts 21 through 28, we get to read more of the downtime. We get to see Paul in, you know, when he's not in the middle of a great sermon or in the middle of a great movement. We get to see him kind of when he's just hanging out waiting as he's in those moments, he is being prepared for what's next. And God is doing the same thing for us. So I want to encourage you with that tonight. And, 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 and again, to contrast the first 20 chapters of Acts, the last eight chapters of Acts take place across a three-year period. So think about that. So the Acts covers 30 years total. The first 20 chapters are 27 of those years. The last eight chapters are are three of those years. So again, there's a lot packed in these last eight chapters. And if you read these accounts uh, uh, from 21 to 28, you'll gather a lot more details and a lot more information than you did previously. Acts 21 through 28 are very dense chapters. They're very, you know, they're, they're full of a lot of information. That's the reason why we haven't went verse by verse through them so far and aren't gonna go verse by verse through them because not that the information isn't important, but it's just a lot of information that Luke, no doubt, took very copious notes and was an eyewitness of this because he's with Paul in these events. You know, Luke wasn't in the story until chapter 16 and he was kind of only in a few of those chapters that we read from there. But Luke is a permanent member of the team at this point and he is in Paul's shadow the entire time. He's walking with him. Even when Paul's arrested and taken to prison, Luke is still on the ground talking to people about Jesus, learning about Jesus, no doubt getting ready to write the gospel that he would write before this one. So Luke was a part of the story and he gets to see all this take place. And it's almost like it takes place in slow motion because Luke gives us every little detail of the story. And that's why I love God's word because we get moments like this and we get to see snapshots like this. So 
We left off in Acts 22 where Paul um, has been attacked by the, riot, by the mobs uh, of the Jewish leaders and the Jewish religious uh, uh, people at the temple. Um, and the Roman tribune comes in and, and saves him. And they think he's trying to start a riot because why else would they be this big mob? So they take Paul and they start asking him questions. And they, you know, they can tell Paul's not really a rebel. He's not really stirring up trouble. They think he's somebody else. And Paul says, no, 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 I'm not that guy. I'm just a Jewish man that came to the temple to, to pay my my respects to my people and I'm here to preach the gospel to these people. Oh, by the way, before you take me into custody, could you let me stand on this platform and preach to these people? And the Roman Tribune is a little bit perplexed because Paul literally was black and blue all over. They were beating the heck out of him and the Roman Tribune saved him. And Paul says, I know it doesn't look like they really like me and why would I like them? But I promise you, I, I'm, not, I'm not crazy. I might look crazy, but I'm not. I need to talk to these people. So could you let me, in the safety of this platform, could you let me address the crowd? And the Roman Tribune thinks, well, that sounds kind of wild, but go ahead. That's fine. I kind of like to know what's going on anyway. So Paul, we read last week, Paul gives his testimony to this Jewish audience. And we talked about his sincerity last week. Remember how Paul spoke to them in their language. He spoke on the level they can understand. He was so intentional. He was so sincere about reaching them with the gospel. And remember Paul's testimony, he reveals that exchange he had with Jesus way back where God says, you're going to go to the Gentiles. The Jews aren't going to accept you. You know, you're, they're going to reject your message. And, and Paul actually says to Jesus, what, you know, in his testimony, but how in the world would they not believe that you are the Messiah after you change me? That I was just like him. And that's why Paul had so much compassion for these people because he was one of them, not just in heritage, but he was one of them as a religious zealot that was persecuting the church. So Paul wanted so badly to share his story with them because he believed if God could save him and God could change him, then that would be a witness to the Jews that clearly Jesus was God's Messiah and clearly Christianity was the one true way to God. A passage that echoes that sentiment, Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 1, 14 through 16. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. So notice how Paul, whenever he tells his testimony, he wants us to understand that he did not deserve this, that none of us deserve this. Paul, as a religious man, as a you know, self-righteous man, as a man that was in obedience to all the customs of Moses and all the customs of Israel, Paul knew he was still a sinner and by all means would never get to God if not for the overflowing love that God showed to him through Jesus. He says, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus or that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He says, if you want to know what it looks like to be redeemed, look at me, but also know this, that if God can do this for me, he can do this for you. Now, notice Paul never became greater than the Savior in his own story. He always put himself under Jesus. And I think that sometimes in our testimonies, isn't it true that we can sort of talk about how Jesus got us in, but if we aren't careful, our testimonies seem to make it all about us. We're not really that different than the Pharisee who bragged about all the things that he was doing for God. And then Jesus said that that Pharisee wasn't righteous at all, but it was the one that came after him that beat his chest and said, forgive me, I am a sinner. 
Paul never got bigger than the Savior in his story. He always stayed little. He always stayed humble because, of course, he knew he would not be saved if not for Jesus' grace. He says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example. So this is why Paul wanted to go back to the Jews, because he believed he was a perfect example of the grace and the patience of God, that if God could save him, God could save anyone. However, this was and still is true that God's work in our lives is a testimony to what he can do in others, um, which is why it's so important that we give glory to God and witness to God um, and witness to others, you know, that they might see and believe and receive for themselves. Regardless, though, Paul's audience does not respond. All that's true. We should tell our stories. We should give glory to God. We should witness to people because it can make a difference. But in this instance, it just didn't make a difference. The Jewish people were not going to respond to Paul's message, and they begin rioting and shouting once more, away with him. So the tribune, like Paul before him, like Pilate before him, is in a box. So he is worried that if they don't punish Paul on a public way, in a public way, the riot's just going to get worse, and they're going to demand that they see Paul suffer injustice. So uh, suffer against the, the, the you know for his for his crimes or alleged crimes. So the tribune says, we're going to flog Paul so that will pacify the Jews. So like Pilate did before, they think we're going to, you know, we're going to whip Paul and that'll keep the Jews from being upset. So that's where we're going to pick up the story. And an interesting development comes to light in that story. Acts 22 verse 22. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voice and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging or flogging so that he might know why they shouted so against him. So again, he he keeps thinking he's done something to, to stir everybody up. As they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? And when the, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. He has a Roman citizenship. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul says, Yes, I am. Now, we haven't known that up until this point in the story. The commander answered and said, With a large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul says, No, 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 I didn't buy my citizenship. I was born a Roman citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him and the commander who was afraid was so afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him because it was um, against the law to judge someone apart from trial if they were a Roman citizen. Now, if you don't know, Paul was born in Tarsus, which is of the province of um, um, Cilicia, which is a Roman province, one of the few provinces in the, the west, the the eastern part of the world, um, Turkey and some of the Middle Eastern countries, it was one of the few provinces that was a Roman territory. Now, Rome, the empire, dominated the whole world, but not all of the citizens, the, the uh, provinces and countries were under that Roman jurisdiction or part of that Roman um, citizenship. So it's a big deal. Uh, so Paul was born a Roman citizenship, 
uh, born a Roman citizen, which um, most people of that part of the world were not, uh, which gave him certain rights, certain, you know, like as American citizens, we have certain rights, due process and all that. Paul as a Roman citizen would be, you know, uh, uh, would be privy to those things. But by Paul confessing at this point in the story that he was a Roman citizen, we start to see that Paul had a motive in all of this. Yes, he came to preach to the Jews, but Paul had to have known that this was going to happen. And maybe he wanted this to happen because as he confesses his Roman citizenship or reveals his Roman citizenship, it begins to give us a little bit of insight as to what his motive in the long run was. Now, if you've been following along in Acts, there is a thread that is in Acts from the beginning um, that Paul's admission um, kind of ties into. So let's try to piece it together. Back in Acts 1, Jesus told the disciples that they were going to receive power from the Holy Spirit and they were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, every little bit, they thought, well, we've gone as far as we can go. They, got to, they went to, to uh, Ethiopia in the desert and that was called the ends of the earth. So then they went to Turkey and they thought they went to the ends of the earth. But clearly, Acts is telling a story that the gospel is going to get farther and farther and farther away from Jerusalem in a way that glorifies God. In Acts 13, Paul says this, so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So again, Paul, as he began to, to be a part of the church, he kept pushing this narrative that I am going to bring the, the gospel message to the ends of the earth. And then in Acts 19, when Paul is about to leave from Ephesus, he says this. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Acacia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So this has been building in the book of Acts. And now, while Paul is about to be beaten here in Jerusalem, he, throws, he pulls out this card that nobody knew that he had, and says, oh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And as you're about to arrest me, you're about to punish me, you can't do that because I'm a Roman citizen. And as a Roman citizen, I deserve due process. Paul all along knew there was a particular way he could get into Rome. And he knew that the way Rome was and the way that the, 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 the empire was opposed to certain things and the Jews had been expelled, remember that? The Jews had been expelled from Rome because of all the riots and all the unrest centered around Jesus and centered around the church. So Paul knew, I'm not just gonna be able to march through the front door. They're not gonna let me in if I say, hey, by the way, I'm a Jewish missionary. The Jews had been expelled from Rome. But Paul, even though he was a Jew, was a Roman citizen. And they would not let him in as a Jew, but they would let him in as a Roman citizen. But again, he would have to go there as a prisoner. So again, I'm not saying that Paul went to Jerusalem so that he could be arrested, so that he could get shipped to Rome as a prisoner. But I am kind of saying that that's what this was all about. See, the end game of Acts all along has been that the church 
is going to reach the ends of the earth to places where its establishment and endurance would be the most unlikely. So there would be no place where the church would be more unlikely to ever reach, let alone be established in the heart of the pagan king-worshipping empire that had just banished the Jews from its city. But how poetic would it be? And think about how awesome this is. How poetic would it be that the gospels end with Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross and Acts is going to end with Jesus' church reaching the city of Rome. How poetic is that? That the Roman cross was thought to end the movement, but the movement makes it to the Roman imperial city in 30 years. So this was Paul's desire and destiny all along. He knew it, and while, yes, he wanted to reach the Jews, he knew that the best way to get him to Rome would be by a product of his ministry to the Jews. He'd get there as a prisoner. He knew he wouldn't make it out of Jerusalem without being arrested, but if he played his cards right as a Roman citizen, his arrest would lead to his arrival in Rome. And and, and maybe all this happened just by chance, But Paul's been talking about this for too long and way too much. And Jesus has been planning this for way too long for this to be just a coincidence, right? I think this is yet another example of how Paul was always going to be the guy that would carry the gospel to the ends of the earth to those that were the most unreached. And we learn earlier in Acts that there were people from Rome who went back to Rome that had heard the gospel and put their faith in Jesus. Acts chapter 2 told us that for the festival at Pentecost, there were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, including visitors from Rome. So prior to the the expulsion from Rome, prior to the Jews being exiled, a church had been established in Rome. A church had been established from the Jewish community. Jews went there, went to Pentecost, they got saved, they went back to Rome, told the people there about Jesus. And there was a very small, let me make that emphasis, very small church in Rome prior to the Jews being expelled. Paul found out about that church, wrote a letter to that church prior to the Jews being expelled, and we have that letter in the Bible. And what's really cool about that letter is it's the longest letter, it's the most famous letter, but it was written maybe to the smallest church of them all at the time. Isn't that awesome that we read Ephesus and Galatians, they're small, not a lot of theology, a lot of practical stuff, not a lot of theology. You read Romans, 16 chapters, it's one of the most famous books of the Bible, one of the most famous books in the world, but it was written to a fledgling church that was about to be exiled from the city. But Paul wrote to that church and wrote to the city of Rome about 10 years before this story that we're reading in Acts. And back in, and if you ever read Romans, if you've ever read Romans chapter one, Paul talks about how badly he wants to go to Rome. Romans chapter one, verse 13, Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Those highlighted parts are so important. Paul says, I am obligated to preach the gospel. Now, Paul didn't do this just laboriously. He was eager to do it, but he had an obligation and an eagerness to go as far as he could out of his own comfort zone to preach the gospel. He says this in verse 16, 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous, the just shall live by faith. Now we'll come back to those last two verses in a little bit, but Paul says, I am gonna get to Rome before this is all said and done. He had a heart to get to Rome because he believed he could change the empire from the very core if he could get there. He would take each day by faith as every Christian could. Even if it would cost him greatly, he would do whatever it took to get there. And and what we're gonna read uh, next will communicate just how unashamed Paul was of the gospel. He's about to stand trial before the Roman governor of Judea, the, per, the guy that took Pilate's job. Um, he's about to stand trial because since he's a Roman citizen, the, 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 the Jewish people and the Roman tribune says, hey, I can't deal with you anymore. I'm sending you to the Roman governor. So here's what happens immediately after Paul reveals his Roman citizenship. Uh, the tribune sets out to get Paul a day in court before the regional governor. Uh, but in the meantime, he knows the Jews will have their place in the trial. So he sends Paul to the Sanhedrin to go ahead and get a former record of what their charges are against him. That just leads to another riot. If you want to read that in chapter 23, it's on record for us. Um, Paul goes to the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees and the Sadducees start arguing. The Pharisees take his side. The Sadducees want to kill him. Um, A riot breaks out. They start fighting each other. And Paul starts getting beat up in the process. The Roman Tribune comes in, takes Paul out of the riot, puts him in prison, puts him in his prisoner cell once again. And then down in verse 11, while Paul is healing up from being bruised and beaten again, the Bible says in chapter 23, verse 11, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so must you also bear witness at Rome. So you see where all this is going the whole time. And and mind you, Paul is getting knocked in the head again and again to get to this point. That's how determined he was to be faithful on his mission. And that's how obedient he was. And that's how unashamed he was. Because Paul was, no matter what he was facing in his flesh, at night, the Lord stood by him and comforted him. Isn't that a privilege? Isn't that an awesome thing that we Christians get to know that when you lay your head down at night, no matter what you face that day, the Lord stands by you. Now, you might go to bed worried and wearied and stressed out and pulling your hair out and worried about what's going to happen the next day. But if you're a believer and God has saved you, and and this is what you have access to, the Lord stands by us. It says, be of good cheer. I know it's been rough today, but I've got a plan for you tomorrow. So Jesus reminds him, hey, you're going to get to Rome. So the next thing that happens is a plot by the Jews to kill Paul is revealed. Uh, The tribune says, you know what? We need to speed up this whole process. So he calls the Roman governor and says, he doesn't call him, he sends him a letter. He says, hey, I've got a guy who is going to be killed if I don't get him to you quicker, uh, sooner than later. So Paul is going to be moved with an entourage to the town of Caesarea up by the sea where the governor was now based out of. So Down in verse 23, we get to read all that happening. He called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. So this is how at risk Paul was. 
and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix the governor. So Felix is the guy who took Pilate's place. A few guys in between him, but same office. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, who was the tribune we've been talking about, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. When I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but they had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me the Jews lay in wait for this man, I sent him immediately uh, to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him farewell. So from that point, Paul is taken by entourage to Caesarea. And that brings us in closing to chapter 24. So let me try to sum this up for you. Paul is about to stand trial before Felix. So again, notice the parallels. Jesus stood in trial before Pilate. Paul before Felix. Uh, Some of the Jewish leaders make their way up for the trial. They have their accusations ready to be laid out in court. Most of the accusations are swiftly denied by Paul and outright proven false. But there is one accusation that they bring against him that Paul boldly welcomes and is found guilty in. And before the court, And facing whatever consequences, he is unashamed and unafraid. Listen to chapter 24, verse 1 through 9. Now after five days, Ananias the high priest came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullius. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. And when he was called upon, uh, Tertullius began his accusation saying, Seeing that that through you, you we enjoy great peace and prosperity and is being brought to the nation by your foresight... We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you or any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. So Tertullus was the, you know, the counsel that they hired to, to give the, the prosecution. For we have found this man a plague, a great, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes, He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you by examining him yourself. You may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So they they accuse Paul of three things. Inciting riots... Being a Christian ringleader and profaning the Jewish temple. These are the three charges against him. Well, to the Romans, the first one is the bigger concern. Because if you're doing that, you're an insurrectionist and that puts you as a threat to Caesar. That's what they killed Jesus for. Pilate put Jesus uh, on the cross for being an insurrectionist, for being a, for, for charge, charged with sedition. Paul had said nothing, had done nothing to start riots. The Jews started the riots, but they, again, tried to put this on him. Paul also had done nothing to profane the temple. But the Jews always used this to get anybody out of the way they didn't like. Seemingly, the least offensive to the Romans and to the Jews would be the part that Paul was associated with a Nazarene sect because he was a follower of a Nazarene man. But Paul takes this opportunity to let them all know that this charge is the one that he welcomed and intended on making even more noise about. 
So that one is the one they really weren't concerned about. But Paul uses this opportunity to say, hey, that's the one I am absolutely guilty of. And let me tell you my intentions. Verse 10, Paul says, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do more cheerfully answer for myself. Because you may ascertain that there is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship, they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogue or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. So Paul says, I'm not, a, I'm not an insurrectionist. I didn't profane the temple. But... This I confess to you. He says, but you know what? If I'm being honest, I am guilty of one thing. That according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just in the unjust. Paul says, if you're seeking to find me guilty on the charges of following Jesus the Nazarene and seeking to establish his church, I am absolutely guilty. I am guilty of seeking to establish his church as the greatest institution on the earth. I am guilty of living a life that glorifies and exalts him as the true and one and only king. Color me guilty, most excellent. Governor, he goes on to say that his faith in Jesus is all about this idea of a resurrection. And Paul knew, Paul knew this was the world's biggest problem with Christianity. That it offered the exclusive hope of the resurrection. You see, the world, governments of the world, religions of the world, all are under the power of the enemy. They want us to feel that we're at their mercy. They want us to want their validation, their affirmation. And they want us to feel as if we will be condemned if we do not fall in line and do what they say has to be done. Paul says, the world wants us to feel doomed and desperate at its mercy. But I have learned through Christ that we have hope. We have a resurrection hope because as our Savior came back to life we are not afraid of death we are not at the mercy of the governments of this world or the religions of this world we are saved by the resurrection of our savior listen how it all concludes verse 22 through 27 but when felix heard these things having more accurate knowledge of the way that's christianity he adjourned the proceedings and, and said, when Lysias, Lysias, the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and not let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for, provide for or visit him. And after some days, when Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now, as he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, go away for now, for, for when I have a convenient time, I will call for you. Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. So this, this is really weird. Felix is talking to Paul all the time, hearing about Jesus, but he just won't do anything. But after two years, Portius, Felix succeeded, Portius Festus succeeded Felix 
And Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, left Paul bound. So Paul ends up staying in prison there at Caesarea for two years. Pay close attention to verse 24, 25. Felix is alarmed. Felix is afraid like Pilate was before him because Paul was not afraid of what the courts could do to him. He proclaimed the gospel boldly. He was unafraid. And that brings us back to Romans 1, verse 16. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. Isn't it amazing that Paul stood on trial facing charges of treason against Rome, blasphemy against Israel, and he makes it clear, I have been accused of those things. I have done nothing wrong in those areas. But the reason I am being accused of those things is because of my association with Jesus. He clears the air because he didn't want to cause trouble for Rome. He doesn't want to cause trouble for the Jews either. But he leans into the the charge against him of being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He preaches the gospel, the resurrection of the dead, the lordship of Jesus, a message that was contrary to the world and could have very easily gotten him into more trouble with Rome. What follows this is another trial with another governor wherein he is found innocent, but Paul appeals to Caesar which when the trial comes to a standstill on the Jewish courts. This appeal to Caesar is going to book him a trip to Rome where he would stand before the emperor in court. Paul was not looking to skirt the attention of anyone with his faith. He was bold, he was loud, he was unafraid, he was unashamed. And upon his confession that he indeed was a follower of Jesus who was put to death by Rome, as the courts began investigating Paul's recent history, it was clear he was a ringleader. His fingerprints were all over the movement. He was the one that kept the church going and surging. But they did not know his intentions. They did not know his motives. No no one was sure. But one thing was clear. Paul was guilty of being a Christian. The evidence was undeniable. Before these charges, Paul was not ashamed because he knew that though the world rejected him and his message, and that very message was power that could not be found in this world. Romans 1.17, Paul says, For in it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith. By faith, we are justified before God. In a courtroom-like setting, we stand before God. We are not found guilty of our sins. We are found innocent and forgiven. That's why Paul would go on to write in Romans 5, for therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have, through him we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We rejoice in hope. So this is why Paul was not afraid when he was on trial before the world, because where it counted before God in heaven, he had peace and he had hope. He stood before worldly courts, condemned. But he stood before God, saved, justified, and righteous. And therefore, he was unafraid, unashamed, filled with hope, and full of boldness. This is why we can be bold no matter what comes our way here on earth. Because we have something from God that this world cannot take away and that instills hope in us. Paul said, this I confess to you, that according to the way I worship God and I have hope in God. Let me ask you, church, do we have that same hope? Are we that same bold before the world? Do we have that same peace when the world comes against us? 
Do we wear our Christian faith clearly in the face of opposition so that if it costs us ties with the world, with our own kinsmen, with our own heritage, we are unfazed, we are unafraid, we are not ashamed? Paul said that we don't just rejoice in those things, we rejoice in sufferings, knowing that sufferings produces endurance. Endurance produces character, character produces hope. And hope makes us not ashamed because God's love is poured in our hearts through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. You or I, we would probably, I don't know about you, but I would try to find my way out of the court. Hey, I don't, I didn't do that, I did that, let me out. Paul leans into it and says, while I'm here, I'll tell you about my faith in Jesus. So we aren't ashamed of Jesus because we know that in him we'll never be disappointed. We'll see his glory and feel his goodness no matter what. If this world investigates us, if we are tried to find what our true allegiance lies, would we be found guilty in Christ? Would we be found guilty as Christians? And if so, would we be unashamed of it? Oh, that we would have the boldness of Paul, the confidence of Paul. We never have to be ashamed of Jesus. We never have to walk back our faith because God's promises are greater than this world's threats. God's promises are greater than this world's temptations. So when you're on the hot seat, and it might would be easy to let your faith take a back seat, we don't have to be ashamed of Jesus Christ because God's promises are greater. God's Comfort is greater. So take the opportunity to be bold, to be fearless, to share your hope with the world. When everybody else panics, we stand tall with faith, unashamed and unafraid. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this testimony of such an amazing man who was not afraid and not ashamed of the gospel. Lord, may we have that same fearlessness and same boldness and same passion and same devotion. Lord, help us whenever we face a situation like Paul to stand tall and stand boldly and stand with great confidence that you are gonna be glorified in it and we are gonna see your goodness through it and that we are gonna come out with hope no matter what. Lord, make us bold, make us fearless, make us unashamed of the gospel. Thank you for Paul's story, and may our stories mirror and reflect his more and more. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.